you know, there's something about humanity that just likes to poke the bear, right? You know, we just like to poke and poke and poke because we want a reaction. We want to see something respond. And so you can watch all these like crazy YouTube videos of people doing just the craziest stuff because they're trying to get a reaction. You know, you see it with animals sometimes. People, they'll go on some kind of safari or something, and there's a lion there in the field, and the lion's just kind of sleeping there, maybe lazily looking at the people going by, and then someone throws a stick or something because they want the lion to be a lion, you know? They want the lion to stand up and roar. They don't want just to lay there like a domesticated house cat, right? They want a reaction, and so, you know, did you know that when you, uh, you can study, you can see that hundreds of people are injured at zoos every year because they mess with the animals, right? I don't know what their first clue is, that it might not be a good idea. I don't know if it's the electric fence, the iron fence, the moat, the cage, but for whatever reason, right, they want to mess with the animals and then they get hurt. Do you remember the story a couple years ago about the lady who wanted to get a selfie with the jaguar? This was in Arizona, at Arizona Zoo. She wanted a selfie with his jaguar. So she hops the one fence, gets right up to the cage, and tries to take a selfie. And so what does the jaguar do? Claws her, right? Reaches right through and claws her. And she said, I had no idea that the jaguar would do that. You poke the bear and you get clawed, right? Eventually, you know, you mess with animals and they will show you their fury, right? They'll just, they'll be animals. You know, as we're making our study through the Gospel of Mark, this empowered study, uh, one of the things that we've seen here on this last day of Jesus' life on earth is people poking him, right? They're poking him and poking him and poking him. Why? Because they want Jesus just to stand up and be God, right? They want him to come down from the cross. They want him to just unleash his divinity over everything. They want the mountains to tremble and the oceans to quake and just Jesus to be God. They don't understand what they're asking. You know, sometimes we go through life and we can poke God too through our disobedience and how we live. And we think we're okay Because like we haven't had lightning bolts from heaven just kind of strike us dead. So life feels comfortable. Life feels good. We feel blessed. We think we're okay. Listen, if God, if Jesus on the cross would have unleashed his divinity over all of humanity right then, they'd all be dead. Right? Because the weight of sin is that much. They would all be dead. No, Jesus, through his loving kindness, through his mercy, was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He modeled what he had just taught, that the one who wants to save his life will actually lose it. But the one who loses his life for the sake of the gospel will actually find it. And so we'll see that this morning. As we uh, study together, Mark 15, 21 through 47, Mark 15, 21 through 47, John Mark writes, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. 
And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, putting it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapping him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. It was 8 a.m. that Friday morning. Jesus, by this time, he had already been through the religious trial. He had already been through the trial before the government, before Pilate. And in the span of four hours, that's all it took for him to go through two trials and to be declared guilty in the sentence, crucifixion. The whole thing was a sham. And so now he's being led to his crucifixion. Uh, He's asked to carry the cross, but... He's too weak. He's going too slow. He's unable to carry the cross himself. And one of the ironies in Christianity is that the one who is unable, who is too weak to carry his cross, is the one who enables all of us to carry ours. And so because he is too weak, because he is unable, there's a passerby, a guy just from out of town. He's walking in the area, and his name is Simon. The soldiers, they compel Simon to come and to carry the cross. Mark tells us that he's from Cyrene. That's from North Africa. Understand, Simon's not volunteering to carry the cross. He's not just saying, oh, Jesus looks like he's having a really hard time. Let me see, can I get that for him? Would it be okay if I kind of stepped in? No, no one's volunteering to carry Jesus' cross, okay? The soldiers, they compel him. They force him to carry the cross. Now, it's likely that we have his name recorded because he eventually became a Christian. That's, that's what we think anyway. That's what we believe. One of the things we do know is he's the father of, of Alexander and Rufus. 
we believe that when Paul writes in his letter and he talks about Rufus, that this is the same Rufus. Polycarp, one of the ancient church fathers, he also wrote a letter referencing Rufus, and we think it's the same guy. But one of the things we do know, confidently we can say this, is this is an unusual family. Okay, we don't know much about them, but we know they're unusual. We know they're unusual because of their names. Okay, Simon, that's a Hebrew name. Alexander, that's a Greek name. Rufus, that's a Latin name. Understand, in those days, at that time, uh, you didn't have this kind of multi-ethnic naming in your family, right? If you were Greek, all your kids had Greek names. If you were Hebrew, all your, all your kids had Hebrew names. If you were Roman, Latin, all your kids had Latin names. That, that, that's how it went. Perhaps this is a multi-ethnic family. We don't really know. But what we do know is they have these names spread out from different regions. And it kind of just hints at for us the universality of the gospel. That the gospel will make its way to all people, all cultures, everywhere. The gospel is the good news for all of humanity. And so we see that, just kind of the foreshadowing here in their names. Simon, he carries the cross. They end up in this place. The procession ends at Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Why it has that name, don't really know. Perhaps the rock there, it kind of looked like a skull. Maybe that's how it got its name. Maybe there was a discovery there on this mountain of a bunch of skulls, and so that's how it got its name. Maybe this is just a place of Roman execution, crucifixion. And because of that, that's how it got this name. All we know is this is a dark place, right? No, nobody wants to march up to the place of the skull, okay? You're not going there for vacation, right? This is a dark place. This is an ugly place. And this is where they take Jesus to be crucified. It was customary that as you're being crucified, that the Roman soldiers would uh, divide the garments of the criminal, the one who's being crucified. And so this is what they do with Jesus' clothes, with his garments. They just raffle them off to the different soldiers and decide who's going to get what. It's just one last act of degradation and humiliation. And this takes place at the foot of the cross. It's interesting. Mark, Mark tells us the charge that Jesus is being charged with that, that's going to hang over his head, that this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's, that's the charge that's brought against him. It's a political charge. It's a charge of treason, which is ironic because this is the very thing that his followers kind of almost bristled at with Jesus. What they wanted Jesus to do, who they wanted Jesus to be was a political Messiah, They wanted him to come in and to restore Israel to this place of splendor. They they wanted Israel to be able to rival Rome and for the Roman occupation to get out and for Israel to now be the shining city on the hill, the greatest country on the face of the earth. But Jesus had no interest in being a political Messiah. That's not why he came. And yet this is the charge against him, this charge of treason that he was trying to usurp the political forces of the day and to be king in Israel right then himself. You remember when they came to get him, when they went to get him, you have the religious leaders, you have the, you have the political people, they're all coming, the soldiers, they partner together, they go to get Jesus in the middle of the night as if he's a traitor, as if he's an insurrectionist. I mean, they're prepared for battle, 600 soldiers it takes to go and get Jesus. 
And now here he is being crucified between two true terrorists, two treasonous, two insurrectionists. You know, you remember James and John? They had asked Jesus, hey, is it, can we be the ones to sit on your right and at your left when you come into your glory? And Jesus told them, you have no idea what you're asking. Now we see they truly had no idea what they were asking. The people who would get this dubious honor of being at his right and left when Jesus comes into his glory, too treasonous, too insurrectionist, too criminals. Jesus spent his life in the company of sinners. He's now being crucified as if he were one of them. He takes the weight of sin. He becomes sin for us. Now, Mark, as he's writing this, and he's just telling us what's going on on this day, it's like he's tolling the hours of the crucifixion. He tells us that uh, the crucifixion will begin at the ninth hour. That's nine, a- or I'm sorry, the third hour. That's 9 a.m. Uh, when Jesus is crucified. The darkness will cover the whole earth, the whole land. That's the sixth hour. That's noon. And then it says that Jesus cries out, with a loud voice during the ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. It's also the Jewish hour of prayer. It's the only words that Mark records for us that Jesus spoke from the cross. It's simply, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark, he also kind of records the intensity of it all. That Jesus, who's been hanging on the cross now for six hours, undergoing this immense pain, that he musters everything he has within him. And Mark says that he cries out, that he just yells out in this loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's an interesting thing that Jesus says. You know, I was taught when I was younger that this was the moment that, that Jesus becomes sin for us, when he takes on all of the sin of humanity and he becomes sin. And because God the Father is so pure and so holy, he cannot look upon sin. So it's at this moment that the Father turns his back to the Son. He turns his face away. And so everything that Jesus would go through and suffer from this point on, he would suffer alone. And you know, I heard that teaching And it kind of bothered me, to be honest with you, because I'm thinking, God, here's God who's a loving God. And here's his son who's been faithful and obedient. He's been faithful even to this point of enduring the cross. And at this moment, with this displaying this ultimate faithfulness, the moment when you would think you would need your dad the most, you would need God the Father and his presence the most, This is the moment when the father turns his face away, turns his back. It always kind of bothered me because, you know, if you have a good dad, a good father, when you go through your most difficult moment in life, you want your dad there, right? You just want the confidence, you know, my my dad would support me in this. I can go to him right now. He's going to be there for me. And so it always kind of bothered me. And And then as I was studying and going through, one of the things I realized that Mark is very careful to point out to us, that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. 
He's quoting Psalm 22. In, in fact, Mark, he's highlighted this whole section. It's all been from Psalm 22. Uh, Psalm 22, it, 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 it talks about the mocking and the head wagging, the division of garments, the, the between criminals. It, it, it even records the taunt of save yourself, the reviling. And in Psalm 22, the opening line is this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so when you quote, in those days, if you quote like the first line of a psalm, you're essentially quoting the whole psalm because people just understood it. They know what it means. They know what's coming. And so Jesus from the cross, he yells out in a loud voice and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's not saying is, why have you turned your face from me? Why, why, why have you turned your back on me? Why are you no longer with me? No, this is a cry of saying, even though I can't feel it right now, even though I'm in the moment of this despair and this suffering and I can't sense your presence, I have this confidence that you are still with me, that you'll still protect me. How do I know that? Well, I just look through the psalm, okay? Psalm 22, 9, it says this, that God, you're the one who brought me up from the womb. You're the one who caused me to trust you when I was a nursing infant. In verse 21, it says this, you have answered me, God. You have rescued me. And in verse 24, if you need to, just all caps this, bold face, highlight, underline, whatever you have to do, you have not hidden your face from me, but turned to me when you heard my cries. And so then the question becomes, well, then what does Jesus mean when he says, why have you forsaken me? What's he, what's he getting at then? Well, the second part of Psalm 22, verse 1, just the kind of the, the parallel statement to that is this. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from responding to my groaning? The issue here is an issue of help. It, it, it's this right declaration that Jesus is made, making. This hurts. This is painful. I'm suffering. I'm in distress Will you help me now? Will you do something about this pain, about this suffering now? But then as you read the psalm, you understand that it's a rhetorical question because the sufferer understands that the Father is not intervening now because it's not his will to intervene just yet. The sufferer is expressing real despair, real suffering, real hurt, real pain. He'd rather not go through this. Jesus had already said that, you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, can you take this cup from me? I'd really rather not go through the cross if I didn't have to. But not as I will, but as you will. And this really, now as he's praying during the customary Jewish hour of prayer, it's just a continuation of what he's praying in the garden. All of this that I'm now going through, because this is my cup, it hurts, it stings, this is not fun, but my confidence is in you, because I know that you're my rescuer, I know that you're going to see me through this, I know that you have not turned your face away from me, but that you understand everything I'm going through. And you know what? We can have that same confidence. That even when we enter into periods of suffering and hardship in our own life, that God doesn't just leave us abandoned. 
No, he actually makes this promise. I will never abandon you. I'll never forsake you, those who are his. Now, we have that confidence because he never abandoned or forsook his son. He never turned away from his son in his hour of need. He was there the whole time. That's how we can have the same confidence for us. In fact, when you think about it, do you know where that verse comes from? God, you're too pure to look on evil. You know where that comes from? It's Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1 is the prophet asking Habakkuk and saying essentially, God, you're too pure to look on unrighteousness. You're too pure to look on evil. And what he's saying is, Israel is so wicked. Israel is so evil. How can you stand up there in your righteousness and just allow Israel to be wicked? The the issue here, and what, what Habakkuk was getting at and what we understand theologically is not that God just can't look on evil, right? Like anytime anything bad happens, anytime anything sinful happens, God just has to cover his eyes. Oh, no, 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 I can't see that. That's not what it is. It's that he cannot look approvingly on evil. He can't just stand up in heaven and say, you know what? Yeah, that's evil, but you know, it's just a little white lie. Compared to all those other people, what you're doing, it's not as evil. So, you know, we'll just kind of give you a pass there. It's not, it's not so big of a deal. Or I understand your circumstances. You know, you've had a really hard life. And so because things have been so tough for you, yeah, you have this sin stuff going on, but I'm just going to look past that. I'm, not, I'm just going to be okay with it. No, no, that's the issue. God cannot look approvingly on evil. He can't just look at it and say, you know, I think it'll turn out all right. We're just going to kind of go ahead anyway. No, no, no. You see throughout the scripture, God looking on evil. You see in the garden with Adam and Eve, what happens? God doesn't say, oh no, humanity just sinned. They've done evil. I, I can't look at them anymore. No, what does he do? He goes into the garden. He provides clothes for them, a covering over their shame and nakedness. And this is what he's now doing for us through Jesus Christ on the cross, is that he looks at the sin of humanity, the evil of humanity. And what does he do? He doesn't turn his face away. He sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to become sin for us, to take upon all our sin and to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to make a just and righteous payment for everything we've done. And so God doesn't turn his face away from Jesus. No, he engages Jesus and he judges the sin of all humanity, but he is with Jesus and you see that in the resurrection. Now, it, it, it begs this question as you're, as you're looking at this and as you're seeing this, one of the things you also read from Psalm 22 is this, is that the sufferer, even when the sufferer is feeling helpless, he always acts in a way to praise God. He says, he says this uh, in verse 22, that I will tell of your name, I will sing of your praises, I will perform my vows, verse 25. So Jesus, he saves this last cry from the cross when he's numb to the Father's presence. The weight of sin is so dark on him that he can't seem to locate the presence of God. So he's just declaring through his words and crying out, but God, I know you're here. 
And I know you're going to rescue me. And I know you're going to see me through. And this becomes the challenge to us that in our suffering, in the hardships, do we still sing praises to God? Because that's the call. When you suffer, sing praises to God. What does that do? It reminds you that God will not forsake you. That he has not abandoned you. That he has not left you. But that he is present. And it declares to a watching world that God is good. Even when it may not seem like it, even when it may not feel like it, that God is good and that he will ultimately rescue his people from their present suffering. And so when Jesus cries out, uh, those watching took notice. You know, they, they, they see what's going on and they, they say, well, maybe, maybe Jesus is calling Elijah here. You know, Elijah's going to come down and, and going to take Jesus off the cross. Maybe this is the moment. Jesus, he's going to just show his divinity. He's going to be God. The mountains are going to quake. The oceans are going to tremble. Jesus is going to be God right here. No. Jesus is going to be obedient, even to death, even to death on a cross. And so with one last cry, he died. And at that moment, the temple, uh, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And that signified a couple of things. It signified something very, very significant was happening. Something earth uh, changing was happening. And uh, one, of the, one of the things about this veil is it, it blocked off. It was almost this veil of secrecy, right? It, it kind of held back God's glory from humanity because humanity could not handle it. And so now the veil is torn and the glory of God has now been unleashed on all humanity through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That We see it on full display that in, in the glory of God would humiliate himself to death and death on a cross. And so it also represents this barrier that only the high priest could enter into this place and them only once a year. Right? Just a brief moment once a year. There's this barrier. And so now what's happening? The barrier has been extinguished. We no longer need an intercessor, right? You don't have to go to some other person and say, hey, here's, here's everything I got going on. Can you present my request to God? And, you know, here's my sacrifices and everything. Will, will this be acceptable to God? And they tell us what we need to do. No, no. The barriers are gone. God's people now have direct access to God the Father. We're invited into the throne room of grace to present our requests to him with confidence. The barriers have been taken down. And with the veil being torn, it's ushering this entirely new system, an entirely new way of doing things. The old way is gone, right? There's no more. It's not about the temple anymore. It's not, it's not about these sacrifices where you keep on bringing your bulls and goats and all these offerings so that you can be right with God. No, the once for all offering has now been offered. Jesus. There's no more bulls. There's no more goats. There's no more. It, it's done. It's a new system. God did not forsake the son. He forsook the temple. All that's being judged is, you know, Jesus was raised. The temple was hazed. Okay, that's what happened. And so it's not about a grand building anymore. It's not that. God is no longer going to inhabit a building. Very soon he will inhabit his people. And so holiness is found in God and in God alone. 
And so in the tearing of the veil, it, it now begs this question for us. Have you experienced that in your own life through a relationship with Jesus? Like, do you now realize that you have direct access to the Father because of Jesus? Or, or do you still feel like that access is denied? Like, I don't know. God and I, were just not on speaking terms. I, I don't know that he would want to hear from me because of what I've done or the things I've thought and all this. Does God still seem hidden? Does he still seem veiled? Like, I'd, I'd like to know God, but he seems so distant, so hidden. I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like I can know him. Is it all about you and propping yourself up, your own temple, rather than making much of Jesus and seeing his glory displayed throughout the earth? Does your life encourage other people to celebrate Jesus? Because that's really what the tearing of the veil does. It just invites everyone to understand that God and God alone is holy, and we've seen that through the person of Jesus Christ, and so we celebrate him. That you, you go throughout the, the, book, the gospel of Mark, as we've been through throughout the New Testament, anytime somebody has a, a relationship with Jesus and they meet Jesus, what happens? They celebrate Jesus. They, they can't keep it quiet, right? They have to tell someone. They have to tell people, like, here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's done. Why? Because Jesus impacts every area of life. It's not just Sunday morning, right? He, well, he impacts my Sunday mornings, and this is how this looks. No, no, no. He, he impacts how you love your spouse, how you love your kids, how you do your job, how you exist as a neighbor, how you exist as a citizen. He impacts your diet, your exercise, your finances. You cannot point to any part of life where a relationship with Jesus does not impact because he cares about all of who you are. And so when you understand that, well, you can't help but celebrate him. He just comes out. You just talk about him. You just celebrate him. And you even see the picture here demonstrated right here at the cross. Because in this passage, as Jesus dies and the veil of the temple is torn, what happens is there's a Roman centurion there, and he declares, surely he was the son of God. A Roman centurion. Understand, for him to make this declaration, everything about his worldview has to have changed. Because Romans in general, and centurion soldiers especially, were taught that the emperor, well, he had the title of son of God. That was actually the emperor's title, son of God. You didn't call anyone son of God except for the emperor. Why? And, and, where, and where does the power lie? Why would you see that? Because of uh, the emperor would embody just Rome's majesty, power and majesty, and you find it in the military might and success of Rome. And so here's this soldier who looks at a scene, and the scene is not mighty or majestic as we would think of it. It's a dead Jew on a cross. And he makes this realization, that man was the son of God. Takes the title reserved for the emperor and puts it on Jesus. Because his eyes are open and he understands. <laughs> and so he stands in contrast to all the other people there who were taunting Jesus just hours earlier. Saying, come on, if you're really the son of God, you know, show us. You know, we just want to poke you and poke you and poke you. Just show us that you're God if you really are. Come down from the cross. Save yourself. Do the, and they're, they're just poking at him. 
And they even say, if you show us, we'll believe. And this guy, he points out and he models what Jesus has already said. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. You think seeing is believing. No, no, no. He can show you and show you and show you and you will still not believe. Faith is not always a matter of seeing in order to believe. No, no, no. Much more, it's a matter of trusting, even to the point of death. See, you've you got to be able to look at a cross and see the powerlessness of it, the humiliation of it, the degradation, the ugliness of it, and understand, no, no, it is right there that Jesus Christ became sin for me. He's the Son of God. He did for me what I could not do for myself. He is God. If you can't see that at a cross, then you never understand who Jesus is. It's the cross that testifies to who Jesus is. And so when the centurion I think one of the things that he did maybe kind of helped open his eyes to understand just who Jesus was is he's a centurion who would have appreciated just following orders. And here's Jesus who is obedient even to death on a cross. I mean, he completed his mission, right? And so his last words, Mark doesn't record it for us, but the other gospel writers, it is finished. He, he finished what he had come to do. And the centurion sees that and he recognizes that, oh, he's faithful. He's obedient. Even through all this, he didn't undergo through all this. And so the challenge is for us now as we look at Jesus' life and his obedience is what Mark is calling and writing. And his purpose in writing is to tell the disciples, hey, Jesus is training you to do what he's done, essentially. Not, not to die for sin, but to be faithful, to be obedient. And so he does the same thing for us. That's the call, right? What's our mission? Make disciples. I mean, that's what Jesus said. Uh, the Great Commission, go make disciples. As you're going, make disciples. And so sometimes we can be unfaithful to that mission. We can do other things. We can say, hey, I just want to live a comfortable life. just want to have a blessed life. Everything be good, safe, comfortable, happy. And we think because life seems relatively good. We all have our struggles, but hey, it's for the most part, I can't complain. It's all right. That because God is not sending down lightning bolts from heaven, he must be pleased with me. He must think I'm doing okay, even if I'm unfaithful to the mission that he's given me. Yeah. We see it on the cross. Jesus is long-suffering. He is patient. He doesn't just send down judgments every time we step out of line. He beckons us through the cross to follow him, to be obedient to your mission. Be obedient to your mission. So upon his death, there's Joseph of Arimathea. He's a respected guy in the community. He's one also seeking the kingdom of God. And he goes, and this guy, I mean, you're talking about a guy with some guts. It's Joseph, okay? He goes to Pilate. And he says, hey, Pilate, can I have the body of Jesus to give him a proper burial? Now, this takes extreme courage. Mark even points that out. I mean, with courage, he goes. Why does it take such courage? 
because he's sympathizing with a condemned, executed traitor, all right, he could be given the same penalty. That, that's what would usually happen, that if you sympathize with someone convicted of treason, it, well, now you're probably a treasonous person too. You're guilty as well. But Pilate, Pilate, he just wanted to wash his hands of all this. He didn't even think Jesus is dead yet. Has he really died already? You know, it seemed kind of like a short crucifixion. So he calls centurion just to double check. Okay, he is dead. I just want to be done with it. Sure, have Jesus' body. Go bury him how you like. And so Joseph does. The women see where Jesus is buried. And the scene ends. And what Mark is wanting his readers to know, how he's kind of built all of this up, is that the cross reveals a new way of life. See, those who taunted Jesus and the chief priests, the the military people, they all thought that, hey, when you're pushed, when life is hard, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to seek self-preservation. That's what everybody does, right? Life is hard. What do you, well, self, what's going to be comfortable? What's going to be best for me? Self-preservation. And you see that throughout just this day in Jesus' life, right? Jesus is arrested. What do the disciples do? They seek self-preservation, They don't want to be arrested too, so they hightail it out of there. They desert him. They run wherever to find their place of safety. Peter, he's in the courtyard as Jesus is being tried, and what does he do? He seeks self-preservation as he's being interrogated. And, you know, the teenage girl in the crowds, you were with Jesus, right? No, 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 no. Not me. I don't even know who that guy is. First I've ever heard of him. He's seeking self-preservation. The religious leaders, what are they doing? Well, here comes this messianic figure. The crowds and the masses seem drawn to him. We got to protect our standing. We got to protect our power. We got to protect our authority. What do they, they seek self-preservation. Pilate, here's Pilate, right? He's looking at the whole thing thinking, this is a sham. This is a joke of a trial. I mean, I know what evil has this guy done? I mean, why, why are we doing this? But what does he do? He seeks self-preservation because he feels the weight of the crowd. Well, I don't, I don't want to get on their wrong side. We'll just go ahead. Yeah, I'd rather have one guy mad at me than the whole mass is mad at me. We'll just go ahead. Self-preservation. And what do we do a lot of times? Self-preservation. What's good for us? What's comfortable? If it's costly, if it's going to hurt, if it's going to bring suffering, I'm out. Who signs up for suffering? What does Jesus do? He doesn't seek self-preservation. No, no. He actually lived what he taught. The one who tries to save his life will lose it. But Jesus did not try to save his life. He lost his life for the sake of the gospel. He models for us what we're to do. And in losing his life for the sake of the gospel... He finds life in Jesus. He not only finds life, he now gives life to all of us. He alone is worthy. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. God, we thank you that Jesus did not seek his own self-preservation But God, he gave his life for us even when we were your enemies. 
God, may we, your people, not be a people who seek comfort and ease and self-preservation, but may we be a people who will lose our life for the sake of the gospel, and in so doing, we have this confidence that we will find it. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.